The average reader moves on in his reading, kicking up dust until coming across an obvious surface lesson. Shuffling along, however, does not typically result in discovered treasures, something we have to dig. Even the digging becomes profitable and enjoyable when we realize we are handling the very Word of God, the Word without which we cannot survive. I like what he's writing there in his introduction to the commentary on Hosea, that God's Word is, is not always easy for us to understand, but it is worth mining the riches of God's Word, isn't it? Let's open in prayer, shall we? Father, we just thank you that you commend your love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we stand here just thanking you for the love that you've bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Lord, we try to grab hold of that thought and it overwhelms us. As we look at the book of Hosea, we ask that you would meet us here. I pray that you would use Dr. Burgraff as your instrument and speak to our hearts and touch our hearts with your word. Remind us again, Lord, of of just your great love. We thank you, Lord, for that and give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, please, to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Every book of the Bible, as we read the different books throughout the Word of God is written, it was occasioned by something that was taking place, and then it was written for a purpose. And so as you look at the various books of the Bible, you can describe nearly every book of the Bible with a word or a phrase. If you were to say, I need something to deal with the Christian life and leaving the past Now that I'm in Christ and the liberty I have, what you would do is the book of Galatians. If you're talking about righteousness, it would be the book of Romans. If you're doing marital counseling and helping people through situations, it would be the book of Hosea, for instance. And so uh, as we look in various books of the Bible, each of those are thematic. They They were written and enclosed in the canon of Scripture for a purpose. And Hosea is one of those books that's really, really rich, but often overlooked. And um, because, well, as we will look in just a moment, there are aspects of the book of Hosea that as you read through it, you're wondering, what has this to do with anything I'm living through in chapters 4 through 13 and on into the end of the book? I wanted to read one more quote from his commentary. Barrett writes this, The Bible did not fall from heaven complete and leather-bound, Different men, all of whom were inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the Old Testament over a period of about a thousand years. But each one lived in his own time and place. Each one reflected and addressed the specific issues of his day. The truths of the Bible are universally and timelessly relevant, but they were first given to a specific people at a specific time to meet specific needs. The ultimate objective as we study through a minor prophet, then is to understand those universal and timeless truths, to apply them to our specific times and needs. In order to do that, then we need to know a little, he says, about the author, his time, his particular circumstances. Though we'll take just a minimal amount of time in each of our studies as we're going through the minor prophets, let me just walk us through this rather quickly, if I can, and spend, generally as we come together for the 12 minor prophets, 
perhaps five, maybe a little bit more, maybe ten minutes, on what we will talk then is what would be the introduction or the background to that particular book. And we've tried to encapsulate, grab as much material that is relevant for us today to understand what's being said in the book and then to give an overall outline of how that book breaks down or that, that short book. Hosea is a little longer, one of the longest of the minor prophets. He almost is long enough to be a major prophet as we would compare him with Daniel and some of the others. So let's begin there, please, as we look at Hosea. The name Hosea, if he lived in the New Testament time, would probably be the name that we would pronounce Jesus, okay? Or Joshua, or the idea is Jehovah saves. And from that, we get the name in the New Testament, Jesus. But the name Hosea, as we look at his name in just a moment then, talks about that Hebrew word, God saves, Jehovah saves. Hosea is the last writing prophet to minister to the northern kingdom before it's destroyed. It's very important to keep in mind always a timeline, if you can sort of embed that in the back of your memory bank, a timeline of biblical chronology. We talked about that last week, and that was towards the end of the hour. We walked through that. But if we were to put creative acts, Adam and Eve, somewhere in the range between about 7,500, 10,000 B.C., Adam and Eve, we would be looking at a flood date, the flood occurring Noah's time, somewhere around 2,500 to 3,000 B.C., We would have Abraham, we can pretty much put Abraham right around 1991 B.C., 2000 B.C., and I'm going to round it off in the hundreds range. So about the year 2000 B.C. is Abraham. Moses, 1500 B.C. As we get down to the great dynasty of Israel under the reign of King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. Each of those three kings reigned 40 years, beginning with their reign at 1050 under Saul. He'll reign till 1010 B.C., David from 1010 to 70, 970, and then from 970 to 930 will be Solomon. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, will come to the throne. And under him, and lacking the wisdom that his dad had written to him, in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes, and as Solomon wrote that, just like today, it's very easy to read that and just sort of blow off the Proverbs. And I hope you read a proverb a day. Okay, And so as you read 1 through 31 of those, you can read a proverb every day. One of the proverbs or one of the chapters of the proverbs. Uh, chapter 1 or today as we would then read through, we would read through that chapter for the day on the calendar. His son apparently didn't listen to him. And as a result, the kingdom split. And you'll have out of the 12 tribes that comprise the nation of Israel in 931 as they split... Ten northern tribes will follow a general by the name of Jeroboam who will become king. And Jeroboam is going to create a whole new worship system. And instead of the people going down to Jerusalem to worship, 
What he will do is, they have to do three things. He'll create a new place of worship, and it'll be at two places. In the north will be Dan, and in the southern part of the northern kingdom, he'll be at the city of Bethel. Number two, he'll change the calendar so they worship on different feast days. And then what he will do is he will create then a different priest system. He will make Israel the sin. And as you read through Kings and Chronicles, the kings, 19 kings of the north of the 10 northern tribes that form the nation we call Israel, and that kingdom will last from 932 to 722. 19 kings, none of them are godly. Not a nine, none. None of them, okay? The last prophet to speak to the ten northern tribes is going to be Hosea. He will come right after the prophet Amos preaches against their sin, but then will come Hosea. After all those years of sin, Hosea's ministry probably ends about 725 B.C. And two years, three years later, Assyria will come through and carry off the ten northern tribes. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, what you have is the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They will go on and they will still continue with prophets warning them. They are called Judah. Okay? And they will last, those two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, with a worship center in Jerusalem following the calendar and the priest that God had prescribed in the Pentateuch. They, however, they will go in and out of sin, and finally God will bring the Babylonians through to carry them off. In 586, they'll destroy Jerusalem. And then they'll go into the 70-year captivity, and then they will come back. And when the people come back into the land, they come back for a while to rebuild, and the things stall, and God will send other prophets, and that's what will get us to Malachi. But we'll be looking at others as we get along toward that time. Hosea, speaking to the northern ten tribes, ungodly, following and preaching. After they followed Jeroboam, the one thing the ten northern tribes did is they became, here's a word for us that we use, syncretistic. And so what syncretism is, as Greek words, as we put them together, it means to blend together. And as they synchronize or blend together, they will blend the ten northern tribes, since they don't go down to worship at Jerusalem, and they will start to blend with the nation, the paganism around them. And one of the things that's very prominent around them, and this was Jezebel's territory, if you remember her name, and some of the other religions around there, but they followed a religious cult of the day noted, that we call Baalism. And they followed the Baalim, or the Baals in Hebrew. And in the Semitic cultures, when they plural something, they don't put an S or E-S at the end, they put an I-M. So you'll see the Baalim, or the, the Baals, as it were. Baalism was the worship of the fertility gods. They pictured it as their, their, their prominent worship figure was a bull, cow, a bull. But what they did then, and so you have these statues, almost looks like Egyptian. Jeroboam for a while got 
his, his allegiances with, with Egypt, but you'll see sometimes it looks like a man with a, a bull head. But the Baal cult primarily was a worship of the God, we would almost call it the God of nature, like a mother nature, but it was more a father nature. But the Baal cult, and then eventually it'll merge with the Ashtara, Baal Ashtara worship. But what it was was the fertility gods that uh, by fertile we mean make the soil fertile, produce the crops, produce your food, and so you really, in a sense, worship not only the gods then who are responsible for the rain, the weather, the, 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 the prosperity. Does that make sense? The good crops, be grapes or whatever it is, we give then as we are prospering, then we give thanks to that God that makes us prosper. But it becomes very, very, very lewd and very ugly to the point that God just, it just rises up to him as a stench in his nostrils. And I'll explain what happens here in just a few minutes in the book of Hosea. Hosea comes at the end of 200 years of that God putting up with that and saying... I'll still forgive you, see, and take you back, even though you've been unfaithful to me. Hosea, the last writing prophet to minister to the northern kingdom before its destruction by Assyria. And as we said, Joshua, Jesus, come from the same Hebrew word, Hosea. The sermons in this book were delivered by Hosea between then 754-55 to 725. And the reason is, is this is a time that right around 750... Israel was experiencing a lot of prosperity. Then for 30 years, there will be no prosperity because the Assyrians are rising back to power. And just the the people now are going through economic depression. They are going through lean time and produce, etc., and so during this time of, of real discouraging times that the nation is experiencing it, after coming out of decades of prosperity, and they were attributing all that prosperity to Baal, God says, I'm sending you lean seasons. And during that time, Hosea preaches. Notice the purpose then of Hosea. This prophecy was God's last voice. I'd underline that to the northern kingdom of Israel, those ten northern tribes, before they are destroyed and lost as a nation. It was a gracious attempt to rescue individuals out of a doomed nation. And the message of judgment will be fulfilled within just a handful of years. Now, as you look at the book of Hosea, the operative term, and because of time this evening, I won't spend a long time on it, but I was going to take us into a study of God's attributes, those qualities we ascribe to Him. He possesses, we know God and what God is like, not by what we say, well, if man is like this, imagine man enlarged, magnified, then God must be bigger than anything that I can... No, no. We know God by His revelation to us. And He tells us qualities about Himself. And as we attribute those qualities to Him, we call those attributes. And the book of Hosea will emphasize numerous attributes of God, but probably as we put underneath the title of loving kindness, mercy, benevolence, and grace, that's, those terms are all umbrellaed under the word of the love of God. 
So love of God, and that's what Hosea is, God's love for Israel. The key chapter will be in chapter 2 where he describes his love. I am a merciful, loving God. And you'll see different key verses. Some of those we're going to read. The key characters in this are two. A man named Hosea the prophet and then his wife. And I guess I grew up watching a TV show with Gomer Pyle. How many of you remember Gomer Pyle? Way too many of us. So when I hear the name Gomer, and that's a woman's name, I scratch my head and go... Can't be. And so the first time when I got saved as a 21-year-old and started reading the book, and, and I'm reading about Gomer in this, go marry a woman named Gomer. I'm going, you got to be kidding. All right. But, but that's her name. And so, uh, wow. Okay, that's like having another name in the Old Testament, the guy named Dodo. But, but you know, so let's, just, let's keep moving, all right? Um, the ten northern tribes is where this takes place in that portion known as Israel. And if you draw a line, it would be just north of Jerusalem and then on up. Now, during this time, a little bit of the historical background real quickly. During this time, there's a lot of political intrigue and political anarchy. And what is important is that when Jeroboam II died, there was a lot of turmoil in the northern nation. Jeroboam's son would come and reign six months. Then he would be assassinated by a man named Shalem who would reign a month. Then he would be deposed by Menahem. And then would be Pekahiah. Then the Assyrians would invade. Pekahiah will be murdered. And it just keeps on going and going and going. But also during this time is a great spiritual anarchy. The Israel's priests and their kings... For those of us who have read this week, chapter 4, you will see that the people are corrupt. Why? Because the priests are corrupt. Huge, huge challenges. And as you watch major denominations today, and we have liberalism on the scene, or where we've swept away biblical truths and the Word of God is no longer written by God about men. It's now a book written by men and their perceptions of God. And that became the new 20th century and on into the 21st century of what we call then liberalism, a new way to look at Scripture. And as we, you and I look at that, all the supernaturalism of the Bible is sucked right out of it. And the Bible then is just a good ethical book. And I challenge that by saying, well, if it's not true, how can it be a great ethical book? It's simply a Sears catalog with the prices removed. It has nothing more to offer you and me. But the reason liberalism swept through is not because it was a groundswell on the part of the people. It was led by what? The preachers. Those who know better. Chapter 4, God brings his great condemnation then upon whom? The priests. Because chapter 13, 2, they bow down and they kiss the calves. Meaning they built those bronze and gold statues to the Baalim and they felt they would worship them by bowing down and kissing. And he says your ministry has become kissing the calves. Chapter 13, 2. And God says, away with it. You have led my people astray. Okay? Hosea's background. 
He is, as we begin our study, let's just look a little bit at his background. If you turn with me, please, then to chapter 1. Chapter 1. And as we start our study in just a moment, uh, as we work actually now through the text, what we're going to do each week in any of the minor prophets is we're going to take a portion of them to preach. We're not going to preach all 13, 14 chapters of a minor prophet, nor five or six. We're just going to take, make a message out of the key chapters so that you get the essence of the book. And as you look at Hosea, for instance, and by the way, I, I found it fascinating as a seminary student years ago. I would sit in seminary, we would have chapel every day of the week in the morning hours, and preachers would come in and preach. You would get these older preachers coming in who had been in ministry 30, 40 years. And they would come, and many of them would preach, and they would talk about God. It was a great time watching some of them, because as they would preach and talk about God, oftentimes they'd stand up there preaching, tears would run down their cheeks. And it was just fascinating to listen to them. I always enjoyed preachers who were more my age because they were younger in their 20s, 30s. They would come. And then they would preach about problems and how to deal with problems. It wasn't until I had been pastoring numerous years that I started to realize something. That as the years go by, those older preachers became very Pauline. Towards the end of his ministry... Paul would write, my great aspiration is that I would know him and the power of his resurrection. I just wanted to know him more because it's really all about him. It's not about how to do ministry. It's about who to do ministry for. I'm not here to please the people or to build it. I'm here to serve him. And as you get on in your ministry and the hair starts to gray or fall out, and you realize I'm not many years away from seeing Jesus. It's all about just simply hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Building a kingdom to man means nothing. God's not pleased with that. He's pleased on how we brought glory to him. And so those older preachers would preach that way. And they used to talk about that relationship you ought to have with God and spending time with Him. And I'd listen as a young preacher going, just tell me how to do it. What, what did you do that was successful? And I need to know that. Only to get out there and then start saying like every other seminary. And boy, they didn't tell us about that in seminary. And then you realize later they were trying to tell us that. In Hosea's ministry, if you take the 14 chapters... There is a break. It's as powerful as if you took a black magic marker and just drew a line right at the end of chapter 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Hosea are a divine soap opera. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are a soap opera of Hosea's life. And then chapters 4 through 14 are the discourses he preached. Now, let me tell you why that is. Before Hosea could preach to the nation of Israel over probably 20, 25 years, a period probably preaching, those chapters from 4 through 14 were probably spoken then over a 15 to 25-year period. But before he could do that preaching and deliver those messages... He himself had to live through chapters 1, 2, 3. 
In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he learned about the love of God for Israel before he could go and preach to them. In other words, let me bring this back down to a seminary illustration. Before you go out and serve, we tell students, you need to go to seminary to get your theology down pat. And what is theology? It's the what? Study of God, theologos. Theo, God, Logos, words about study of, study of God. But before you're going to go out and tell people to serve God, you better know about him yourself. Well, in Hosea's life, his seminary training wasn't in a classroom setting, wasn't at Shepherd Seminary here in the halls of Colonial Baptist Church. His seminary training was his home. Anytime, by the way, that Jesus Christ teaches or God writes to you and me and tries to connect with us some of the deepest truths. Do you know what he's going to use as an example? The what? The home, the prodigal son, for instance, and his dad. He'll take us into David's life. He pulls back curtains on home life and he says... And he'll oftentimes use father-son parenting relations, husband and wife relations. And as he pulls back those curtains and those relationships, you get to see something about how God connects with you and me. Okay? And that's what he does in Hosea's life. With that in mind, then, what's going to happen is, as we look at this background, in the next 15 minutes, what I would like to do... but. The one thing we're going to learn is this. The nation of Israel, in a sense, was married. When you, we have a wedding ceremony and the bride and the groom walk down here, they enter in as they'll stand here looking at each other. They will enter into a covenant. All of us would be witnesses. But there's an agreement now for better, for worse, richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I vow, I pledge, we enter a covenant. We seal it with a ring, a symbol of an unending circle. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall now be what? One flesh. And a covenant relationship is entered into until what? Death parts us, takes one of us home to be with the Lord. That covenant relationship. Well, Israel had entered into a covenant relationship with the Lord. And by the way, so much of even the Lord's return, Matthew 24 and others, is all built around Jewish customs of marriage. We understand those things. He uses that home and marital relationship for much of the Lord's relationship to you and me. Well, the nation of Israel was in a covenant relation with God that way. And by the way, we get to Malachi and he'll talk about, I've given you a divorcement. See? So God gets pretty drastic with them. But notice, they had gone after other gods. They had committed spiritual adultery. Her forsaking of the Lord had bred a multitude of sins which were enumerated by Hosea. As you read chapters 4 through 14, you will see sins of unfaithfulness, deception, murder, stealing, adultery, rebellion, idolatry, disobedience, pride, stubbornness, involvement in spiritism. You go, whoa, it's quite a grocery list. The leaders were just as sinful as the people. Sin had so hardened Israel that she would not repent. 
And judgment then was sure. And that will happen in 722, three years after the gathering together of this book. But Hosea was just as sure that God would restore Israel in the future. And so God will bring hardened Israel back at a day that's still future for you and me. Now I've outlined for you all 14 chapters of the illustration of divine love, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then the the indication that God loves them by the things he says. You'll see the defection of the people in chapters 4 through 7. And then because they would not come back, well, there will be a period of destruction, as it were, and then God will deliver them. Now, the book of Hosea might be said to express God's love for backslidden believers. Within its chapters, God expresses to everyone his hatred of sin and love for the sinner himself. It's a reflection of the tenderness of God's eternal mercy. The book of Hosea is relevant to you and me today. It is just as relevant today. Now, what is the message that comes out of this book? If you were to summarize the message of Hosea in one proposition or one truth statement, a challenge to me and you, uh, to you and me, is this. Learn about the heart of God. Grab a hold of, understand God's heart. And we will see that his attributes of justice, faithfulness, long-suffering, goodness, mercy, and love. Our focus then is on his goodness, or as Grudem writes, God's mercy, patience, and grace may be seen as three separate attributes or as aspects of God's goodness. And what I'm going to do in just over the next 10, 12 minutes is skim for us and read pertinent portions of chapters 1, 2, and 3. As you look then, there are three, if you'll notice with me then, as we learn about the heart of God, three major truths. I can give them a Roman numeral 1, a Roman numeral 2, and a Roman numeral 3. Roman numeral 1 is simply God suffers, or you could use the word anguishes, when his people, his children, are unfaithful. That's still true today. God suffers in his heart when his people, his children, are unfaithful. We'll understand this. And by the way, Roman numeral two, God cannot condone sin. Roman numeral two, God cannot condone sin when his people are unfaithful. That's chapter two, verses one, uh, two through 13. Chapter 2, 2 through 13. And then Roman numeral 3. God seeks to restore his people when they are unfaithful. That's chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 3, verse 3. God seeks to restore his people when they are unfaithful. Now, let me just walk you through this outline so you can fill in some blanks. And then for those of you who are on a reading schedule, if you haven't started one now this week, what I'm thinking might even be more helpful is if you were to let us preach through, talk through, do this preaching, and then go back and for you and me, then read through the book with that as background. This week, I'd encourage you to read all of the book of Hosea. But as we talk about God suffering or anguishing at heart when his children are unfaithful, I want you to notice two areas that are affected in Hosea's life. 
First of all, notice underneath God suffers when his people, children are unfaithful. The two areas, first of all, is Hosea's home. Hosea's home. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and then verses 8 and 9. Notice, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Barry during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, we don't know who his father was, buried. Some think it might be a prince of the tribe of Reuben, others from the Issachar. We don't really know. It's all speculation. We do know that he is ruling and crossing over a large period of time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That would also make him contemporary with the prophet Isaiah. Okay? Isaiah the prophet then is preaching to those same kings to the southern tribe of Judah during that time. During the days of Jeroboam, the king of Joash, king of Israel. So right after Jeroboam II, that's when then he is preaching there. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. God is going to tell Hosea to go and marry a woman by the name of Gomer. Take to your wife a woman. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. She conceived and bore him a son. Now, did he marry a prostitute? The answer is no. She wasn't at that time. And had she been a public prostitute at that time, she would have been put to death and stoned. Okay? That was the law of the, the land. But the term is a woman with that heart propensity. That within her heart, and that literally the Hebrew is a, a whoring heart, but a harlotry heart, a proclivity toward, has the, within her heart all the potential to remain, to become unfaithful. Okay? Now, Hosea is writing this, as it were, God had told him to go and marry. And as the sovereign God led him to do this, Hosea now is reflecting back on what God did through his home. And the experiences that he experienced over these years. And what he learned through that seminary in his home. Okay? Now, as he did that, he married Gomer, this woman... And as you see uh, in verse 3, so he did so. And, is, and the Lord said to him, name this first child that they had together. Give him the name Jezreel. For yet a little while I will punish the house of Jehu. Jehu was one of the generals that had been underneath David and the king. And when he had gone through, he had been way too severe. And then his sons actually would later on come to the throne and rule in this area. And they were as well unspiritual man. And so now what he, this Jezreel to avenge for Jehu, and the idea is Jezreel mean the Lord sows, and I will punish the house of Jehu, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. There's a whole lot we could just preach on that. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, now this is very important. Something happens between verses 5 and 6. The first child is Hosea's and Gomer's. But over the years, this woman actually became a Baal worshiper. She forsook the God of Israel and she followed after the Baal cult. And in the process of that idolatry, she, part of their worship was harlotry. Okay? 
they worshipped in temples all over the land in what they called religious prostitution. She would give birth to two children. The first one through that would be called Lo Ruchamah. And the word Ruchamah in Hebrew means compassion. The word Lo is the, our word for no or not. I will not have compassion on them. The word for my people is the word Ami. And they will name the second child. She'll do it again. Lo Ami. These aren't my people. Okay? And so that's what happens. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them. When she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Ami, for you are not my people. Yet the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured. And in the place where it said, you are not my people, you are the sons of the living God later. Okay, now what happens here is Gomer commits this adultery. Hosea then is eventually, what she's going to do is she's going to commit adultery in his home. And he will take her back in time. But I want you to notice, second, Hosea's home. Notice Hosea's heart. God suffers anguish when his people are unfaithful. Notice his heart. Go with me. And it should be chapter 2, 2 through 5. As you talk about uh, this, as we look then at Hosea's heart, we're going to see. Say to your brothers on me and to your sisters Ruhamah, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife. I am not her husband. Let her put away harlotry from her face and adultery from between her breasts. And what it was is they would wear a necklace and as she would wear it, she would actually wear what would look like, I remember as, as, um, uh, as a Roman Catholic, we w- used to wear what we call a scapula. And it was, we'd wear it and we'd have saints that we would wear and hang around. This would be our patron saint and we would wear it and tuck it under our t-shirt and that would be our saint that we would pray to or keep near us, guide and protect us. They did the same type things in the Baalim. And so they, they wore saints and they wore their little statuettes and she's doing those kind of things as a symbol of what she's involved with. You realize the depth of his love and the agony of his heart when the essence is this. Hosea had married a woman who had run off to a pagan cult religion, committed just unheard of sins. She, in chapter 2, she is claiming, and the reason she did it is because the things that bring me delight in life, my home, my food, the jewelry that I am wearing, the clothes that I have on my back, all these things that I have come from the gods around me. They've provided this to me. And Hosea says she doesn't even realize the food she is eating, the home that she lived in, the clothes she is wearing, everything she has, I gave her. But because she doesn't, I will strip those beautiful things off of her and give her what she deserves. It'll look like sackcloth. And I will take away that good food and let her eat 
what she really deserves. And let her go after those gods. And when she went after them, and she had become that merchandise in that worship center in the pagan, she was finally sold as a slave. The old King James James said, for a homer and a half homer of barley. A homer and a half homer of barley is what you would pay for a broken down donkey that you would use in a stall not to plow a field but to keep company with your other animals or your prize donkey so they wouldn't feel lonely. That's all they were good for. They, they were good for nothing. That's what Gomer was now reduced to. And God says to Hosea in chapter 3, he commands him, go again. Notice chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, go again, watch this, love the woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. I went and bought her back. She was reduced to nothing. And I brought her back to me. Why? Because God said, go and love her again. And I made an act of the will and brought her back. I loved her and I'm willing to take her back. Even though she has done the cruelest, worst things imaginable to her husband, her lover. And what this is a picture of is of the fact that what? You and I sin. And the God Well, let me read what David Allen Hubbard in his book wrote. Idolatry is the human problem. Whether ancient or modern, the human imagination is a factory tooled to produce false images of God. You will never meet a person who is not, in some sense, spiritual. Not that everyone goes to church or studies religious books or faithfully carries out religious rituals. But even the most secular of modern persons has a reverence for something beyond himself. Business success, political power, financial gain, intellectual prowess, material comfort, sensual pleasure are just a few of the ambitions that people are willing to devote themselves to. Measure a person's use of time, Weigh the attention given to various topics in a conversation that you hear from them, and you will get a picture of what that person really worships in their heart. Such worship, Hubbard says, is dangerous. It crowds the true and living God out of our lives, or even worse, it makes him a tool by which we try to achieve the ambitions that is our real God. What is it that you and I sometimes go following after? and forsake God in order to have. What do we give our attention to? What is it? What are the gods in our lives? And what are the things that we really think provide us with happiness? And they draw our attention away. What are the things that we are devoting our time, maybe a career, our energy, maybe it's this, our whatever it is, you fill it in. 
And we run after them almost as if they have the draw of a God upon our lives. And when it's all said and done, God says, but I'm the one who really loves you. I'm the one who's provided. And when we're all done running, God says, I'm still here, and I'll take you back. And I will forgive you as if it never transpired. Because if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Israel never learned the lesson. They never got it. Praise God, we don't have to live through that. Amen? The book of Hosea. Take and read it. It's a story then on the love of God. So God suffers when his children are unfaithful. We saw that through Hosea's home, Hosea's heart. God, and by the way, under that Roman numeral one, we talk about and learn the nature of sin. That it just breaks the heart of God. Roman numeral two, God cannot condone sin when his people are unfaithful. That tells us about the severity of sin. God now, there now occurs two pictures in relationship to sin. One then is condemnation, chapter 2, 2 through 5. Condemnation of sin, we talked about that. And then chastisement, chapter 2, 6 through 13, where he then strips her and takes her back. Now, Roman numeral 3, God seeks to restore his people when they are unfaithful. We learn then the picture of divine love. He will restore them to favor. He will give them all the blessings they don't deserve. But he's going to, Hosea is just going to shroud Gomer now with all the blessings. He's taken her back. So he restores her to favor and restores to fellowship. Restores to fellowship. She now calls him Ishi, my husband, and Baali, a master in life. So lest we leave the message and gather dust back in the Old Testament, Jesus says the very same thing. I have somewhat against you. You have left your what? Say it with me. Your first love. Just as relevant as today. I would encourage you this week to read through now three chapters out of Hosea between now and next Sunday. Next week, well, then we'll look at the book of Joel.